and let that kind of lead us into what we have this morning. So let's read. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your guidance. Lord, we thank you for your leadership in our lives. God, I pray this morning that whatever we may come in with, whatever doubts, fears, discouragement, Father God, I pray that this morning we could lay those things aside. Lord, open our hearts and minds to the truths that you have for us in the place where we are, in the life that we live, and the work that you have to do in our lives. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. So this morning, church, we continue to kind of navigate here the book of Nehemiah um, as we've looked at the idea of restoration and what that looks like. And like we've said week after week, you know, uh, restoration looks different as far as what it is that the Lord is restoring. Now, ultimately, we're speaking of a spiritual restoration um, and with an understanding that that spiritual restoration does a life, uh, does a work in our life in the life that we live as we're uh, students, as we're spouses, uh, as we're parents, that that restorative process, it affects all of those things. And so, you know, leading up to this point, if all we had was Nehemiah chapter 1 to Nehemiah chapter 3, then we would just know that, hey, they started the work, they did the work, and everything was good, great, and dandy. But if we know anything about life, we know that that is not how life typically goes, right? That things aren't always easy, that the work ahead isn't always without some sort of opposition. And so if I had to title this morning anything, it would be this, Opposition to the Restoration. Because inevitably, when we begin to do something right in our life, and I think if we're really honest with ourselves, any right steps that we've ever tried to take in our life, whether we're trying to right our relationship with the Lord, you're trying to right your relationship with your spouse, trying to right uh, your relationship to the world around you, whatever you're trying to do that's a right step in the right direction, inevitably it is met with opposition. Every time, inevitably, it's met with opposition. And no different in this situation. Like I said, if we only had uh, Nehemiah up to chapter 3, we would believe and see that the work started, the work's done, and that's all. But we have Nehemiah chapter 4 through 6, and what we see in Nehemiah chapters 4 through 6 is we see this constant cycle of trying to make some progress, meeting opposition, and then having to start back from scratch. And, and I think for a lot of us, this is, and, and for us as, as, as humanity, this is the cycle of our life, right? Taking right steps, meeting opposition, making some mistakes, falling back into the cycle, and then starting over. And, then, and I love how when we get into this, I, I really believe, that these moments here in Nehemiah chapters 4 through 6 can be an encouragement to us because what I believe here is what Nehemiah is going to begin to show us is being very honest about the opposition but then giving us some very great looks at, at how we navigate that. How do we navigate the opposition? How do we navigate when the enemy is working against our best attempts at being exactly what it is God wants us to be? Stepping exactly in line with where God wants us to step because inevitably every restorative process is going to be met with opposition. Inevitably. 
It will always happen. And so Nehemiah has led the people to begin this work. The work is beginning and the enemy doesn't like it. Back in Nehemiah chapter 2, we saw this same enemy try to, try, to, try to distort or discourage the work that they were beginning to do. And so now the work is actually happening. And then the enemy does what the enemy does. He amps up his attacks. He amps up his, his attacks. And so there's two quick things that I want us to see here. As we kind of see, Sinbalat is kind of the main character of this situation. And Sinbalat, or Sinbalat, he is the governor of this region uh, under the king of Persia. And so what he sees is when he begins to see God doing a work for these people, he's beginning to see what the enemy sees in our own life when God begins to do a work, is he's seeing his power over those people slip away. Because people in power, what do they want? They want people to be weak. They want people to be broken. They want their willpower to be shattered. And so as the, the governor of the, this Persian region is seeing the people of, of Israel starting a process of restoration, starting to kind of get things in the right path, he's seeing his power over them slip away. And so this is when the attacks of the enemy amplify. And it's the same thing in our life. Listen, whenever Satan begins to see his power over you slip away, his attacks will amp up. He's going to begin to wage war against you. He's going to wage war on your mind. He's going to wage war on your process. He's going to wage war in your family. He's going to begin to wage war because he sees the power he has over you slipping away. And so there's two quick things that I want us to see this morning. I say quick, and I know you're thinking in your mind you're a liar. Two quick things, I promise. The first thing is this that we see is we see the enemy's weapons of opposition. The enemy's tools of opposition we begin to see here. In verse 2, we see Sanballat uh, as he's communicating to these others around him. It says his brothers, whether this is his literal brothers or whether this is his kind of brothers in arms, the people that he's navigating this space with. But we read here in verse 2, he said, And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria... What are these feeble Jews doing? What are these feeble Jews doing? I, I, I think it's very interesting how, how this comes out right here as he's communicating about the people of Israel. Because we see his opinion about them, right? What are these feeble Jews doing? The enemy's evaluation and opinion of the people is low, viewing them as weak and incapable. You can pretty much take those two words, weak and incapable, and clump them together and feeble just sounds like that's what that is saying. What are these feeble, weak, incapable Jews doing? You know, and the reality is some of their history could communicate some of this. I mean, they've spent the last, uh, some of their history, the, and it would validate it, it, they've settled in ruin for the last 90 years. They came out of captivity, out of Babylon, and then spent 90 years living in the ruin of what was their promised place. So yeah, a lot about what their history shows would communicate that they are weak and incapable of doing what they need to do because it has not been done up to this point. But the work of the restoration was happening. Good things were happening. And where does the enemy start? The enemy starts in their past. What are these feeble Jews doing? What are these incapable, weak people doing? They have not done anything up to this point. Everything they've tried has failed. Why? 
what are they doing? The enemy's first attack is on their history. They were conquered, they were defeated, they were left in ruin. And so what do we say? Listen, a work of God will never go without opposition. And the first place that the enemy will start is with our history. You're weak and incapable. Feeble. What can you do on your own? Without some sort of support. Without some sort of resource. Listen, and I want to give you this idea. That our history does not have to define our trajectory. Because the reality is we all have history. We all have mess that we've walked through. More recent maybe than some. And maybe more on the horizon maybe than some, right? But with every movement, unfortunately, we tend to stir up mass sometimes. And for the enemy, his, 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 the place that he loves to settle in is, is history. He loves to look at our history. He loves to remind us, hey, he, remember that? You know, for them, remember you've spent 90 years in a bunch of garbage, basically. A bunch of mess. But we have to remember that a work of God will never go without opposition. And church, the way we lived, the way we lived does not have to dictate the way we live. The way we lived does not have to dictate the way we live, but the enemy will convince us otherwise. Because a lot of times the way we've lived is our comfort zone. It's the way that we've known. It's the way that we've acted. It's the way that we've talked. It's the way that we've been motivated. It's been our comfort zone. So even though it could be a heaping pile of garbage behind us, depending on the circumstance and depending on our perspective of the situation, that may be the most comfortable place for us to be. The most comfortable place for the children of Israel to have lived the last 90 years has been amongst ruin. We're not much different than that. As messed up and as, as, as bad as the situation may look around us sometimes, we will settle into the ruin. Because we're too afraid of what's ahead. We're, we're not sure what we can do. We're not sure what we can accomplish. We're not sure how we can navigate it. But like we said, our history does not have to define our trajectory. And, and the thing is, is that the enemy kind of continues to build on this idea. As you continue through chapter 2, he says, Will they restore for themselves? And I want you to catch some key words here. Will they restore for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? You know, I, I love that the word that stuck out to me really heavy there is they. Because the enemy's focus is, is on the people, right? Like, I mean, will they? Will they be able to accomplish it? Will they be able to do it? I love that, that one of the things he says, which is so obvious, but I think in our minds, especially when we have goals in our minds and ways that we want to do and ways that we want to live, that, that we won't be uh, quite as logical about it. But one of the things he says is, he says, will they finish up in a day? Obviously they won't, right? I mean, they're rebuilding a, 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 a kingdom here. But I love that that's where the enemy goes. I mean, will they, will they finish in a day? Because listen, what, is, what do we hate to do? 
We hate to wait, right? We hate to see things through. We, we hate, you know, we are a right now, get it now, Amazon delivery next day. If it doesn't, I'm mad at the UPS person driving around town trying to find them. Post on Facebook, let me know if you see that UPS person. I'm waiting on a package I ordered like 20 minutes ago. I want to go find them so I can get it, right? Like we are just in that, like we get, I get mad about commercials when I'm watching something on streaming service, right? Like when reality, my whole life, I've watched 30 commercials in between uh, breaks of a TV show, but we just don't live like that anymore like we want it now we want to see everything we want to have everything and so I love this reminder about where the enemy attacks he says will they finish up in a day obviously they won't but that's where the enemy wants their minds you're not going to finish it you're not going to finish it in a day it's going to be a process it's going to be long it's going to be hard he's making a mockery out of them and their ability to finish the task, will they finish up in a day? I mean, who wouldn't want it to be done quick, right? I don't want to live in the mess. I don't want to look around at ruin constantly. It's a process. And this statement is meant to discourage the people about the process. Listen, our life is a process. There's mess that's going on. And a lot of times we will bow out of the process of God's work in our lives because we're not patient enough with his work. We want things to be fixed. I don't want to think like this now. I don't want to act like this now. I want to do these things now. And you know what? If I can't not do it now, then I might as well not even walk into the process God is leading me to. If I can't be the perfect husband or wife now, if I can't be the perfect dad now, if I can't be the perfect Christian now, then I'm not even going to be in the process. And that's what the enemy will tell you. You think you'll get it done in a day? You're not going to get it done in a day. But then God reminds us. And it's not about your timeline. It's not about today. It's not even about tomorrow. But it's what I've promised you ahead. It's what I've told you. It's what we've sang about. That victory is won. That's the confidence and the promise that we settle into as a Christian. The people who have put their faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that the battle's already fought. We're not working towards victory. We're working from victory. It's happened. And that's where the enemy wants to get, wants to work. That's where he wants to dabble. That's where he wants to distort. That's where he wants to discourage. Psalm 35, 15 through 16 says, But at my stumbling they rejoiced and gathered. Talking about the enemy. Listen, the enemy loves to see us get off track. The enemy loves to see us. And listen, we're not even talking about just a spiritual enemy. We're talking about a physical enemy too. Those that may be around us at times that want to see you as a Christian stumble and fall. They want to see you suffer. They want to see you make a mistake. They want to make sure everyone knows. And not only do they rejoice, but I love this. It says, and gathered. They gathered together against me. Listen, for a lot of people, a common enemy is the Christian. A lot of people, whether it's because of our moral stance, whether it's just because of what we represent, for a lot of people, the common enemy will be the Christian. He says, they gathered against me, wretches whom I did not know. He says, they tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Church, the enemy likes to remind us how hard the process is, and they celebrate when we stumble. Because the process is going to be hard. The time, the talent, the task it would be. 
And then he says here in verse three, at the, I mean in verse two, at the end of verse two of uh, Nehemiah four, he says, "Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that?" So not only broken. Heaps of rubbish. I love this, this big word. Like, there's so much destruction. There's so much mess. There's so much broken down. Heaps of rubbish. And I love rub, that word rubbish. In other words, it's tra- in other places in the Bible, it's translated in a very kind of profane way. I mean, almost like a dung heap. Like, just mess. Rubbish. It's nothing. It's worthless. It's garbage. Heaps of garbage. He says, not only is it heaps of garbage, is it a mess? And listen, like we said earlier, we're good at making a mess. Very good at making a mess. Our kids don't have to be taught how to make a mess. We, we by nature, are humans who are good at making a mess. Not only is it a mess, r- rubbish, broken, but he says it's Burned. Burned ones at that. It's scorched. And so there's two aspects of that. Not only is it visually affected, right? The stones are going to have the scars and the the remnants of the destruction on them that they're not going to be able to remove. But also, he's communicating the idea that it's, to a certain extent, structurally compromised. That it's never going to be able to be rebuilt the right way. That because of the destruction, it's not only going to have the visualization of the destruction as a reminder, but there's a chance that because of the fires, because of the effects of the elements, that structurally it will not hold up. Listen, the enemy wants you to, number one, be reminded of the scars of what was. But not only that, but that there's no chance it could ever be rebuilt to be sturdy, to be structurally sound, to be strong. You know, and the reality is, they probably didn't have the best materials to work with. That was true. This within itself is a discouraging attack. A a discouraging attack. And the truth is, in reality, discouragement from the enemy does contain some truth. You know what? It was a big mess. The materials probably were compromised. The materials would have the scars of the destruction on them. Listen, every discouragement, and I think this is what holds us back a lot of times the most, is the biggest discouragement that the enemy throws at us contains some truth. But the truth neglects the great truth. That God was with them and the purpose was bigger than themselves. Because that's where the enemy was focusing, on they what they would do for themselves, how they would accomplish it, how they would do these things. It wasn't a denial that there was mess around. There wasn't a denial that there may be remnants of their mess that would linger on. There wasn't denial that there were going to be problems ahead. 
but the enemy wants them to focus there. The current, and, and, and that's the, the thing that the discouraging truth doesn't acknowledge, that current circumstances, you know, within the current circumstances, we don't have to act ignorant of it. We don't have to act ignorant of the mess. And this is the problem where we can get as Christians sometimes is that we, we want to kind of place a mask over, facade over the mess. Well, if I can just stuff this in a closet, if I can just cover this with a sheet, if I can just kind of hide it in the back, then no one will know I'll never have to deal with it. But the reality is, is the mess is the mess. The mistakes we've made, the sin we've committed, the hurt that we've caused, it's there. There's nothing we can do about it to make it go away on our own. But we don't have to. All those things add up as burdens in our life. And what did Jesus say to the people? Bring them. Bring the mess. Bring the mess. I'll take care of it. I'll deal with it. Old Testament tells us that he, he, he places them as far as the east is from the west. That the stain of red, that we, the, the, the stain of sin that we can't get rid of, he says he's washed it clean. Listen, but that's not our doing. That's the doing of the Lord in our life. That's the doing of God on our behalf. But we can only do that if we'll acknowledge. You know, the Christian life is built on repentance and confession. Acknowledgement of sin and an acknowledgement of need. That I need to turn away from this. That I need something bigger. That I need to depend on something besides myself. That I need forgiveness. Listen, discouragement is the opposite of faith. Faith believes God and His love and His promises. Discouragement believes the worst, forgetting who God is and what He has promised to do. And, and he, they continue on this idea in verse 3. As the people, the enemy's talking, it says, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So he's saying it won't hold up. What's the point? And a lot of us as Christians, this is where our mindset goes when we consider taking some positive steps in our Christian walk, or we even consider taking the walk into Christian faith at all. We think to ourselves, what's the point? Because I'm probably going to mess up again. Or what's the point? Because what if it doesn't hold up? I try to build this up. I try to build my family into a Christian faith. I try to build myself, my relationships, into the right direction. What's the point if it's going to fall to pieces? And listen, that's not the, the words of God. That's the words of the enemy. Here he says, if the fox goes up on it, this little light fox walks on this big wall, it's going to crumble. Listen, the enemy is going to attack the quality of the work God is doing. Because the point at which he's attacking isn't God's work himself, but our place in it. That's where the enemy is going to, be attack, going to attack. I mean, when you see here, these weapons of opposition, they're all focused on the people and their inability and their weakness and their history. And not only that, but to know that the enemy uses discouragement to distract us from the process. The enemy uses discouragement to distract us from the process. And if we allow ourselves to believe that the work won't hold up, it can greatly affect our commitment to the process. If we don't believe that what God will do will hold up because we're too focused on our own inabilities, 
then we'll jump out of the process. We'll be discouraged about the process. And not only discouraged about the process, but the enemy will also try to confuse us in the midst of the process. In verse 8, he says this, to cause confusion in it. The enemy wanted to use confusion to corrupt and control the progress of the restoration. And the enemy does the same thing. He'll confuse us on what we should be doing. How is it supposed to react? How is it supposed to be? How is it supposed to act? Listen, I talk to people all the time who, are, who have been in the church and who are now not in the church. And when they talk about having to try to navigate post-Christian life, they are so confused. And a lot of it's because of maybe a misrepresentation of what Christians have done or maybe missteps that Christians have participated in. And so within it's contributed to the confusion. But all of that is the work of the enemy. But it's hard to communicate that and to reveal that to someone who is in the midst of the confusion. Because that's how the enemy works. He gets us so caught up and so confused that we don't know what's right. We don't know who's right. And we don't know how to take the right steps. The enemy wants to corrupt and control by confusion, disorganization, and distraction. This is an important strategy of the enemy, to create confusion among the people of God. Because a confused people, and this is important for us to know, a confused people will never move forward. A confused people will never move forward. I don't know about you, but one of the hardest things that we have uh, when we're trying to make decisions about what we're going to do... say, like on date night, it's making a decision on where to eat, right? Isn't that sometimes the hardest thing? Why? Because we're confused because there's so many options. There's so many things. There's so many avenues to go. Like, do we want this? I mean, now if we're staying in De Quincey, there's not really that many options, and it's super easy, right? But if you're going anywhere else, doing anything else, there's options. We're confused about what do I want? What do do I want to have? How would I want to be satisfied? What's going to satisfy me? It's the same thing in our, in our life as we're navigating as Christians, navigating a sinful world, navigating the world that we live in. What do I want is the question. What will satisfy me? What will fulfill me? And the fact that we're having to ask that question as a Christian especially reveals the nature of confusion that the enemy has brought in. Because the question is, is there is no question. My satisfaction, my guidance, my fulfillment, my identity, they all come from Jesus. But what the enemy does is he comes in and he begins to confuse us on that. And then what happens is we begin to ask the question, well, what do I really need? What will really make me happy? What will really bring me fulfillment? What will will really satisfy me? I mean, the enemy has done this since the beginning in the garden. It was all about doubt and, and, and discouragement and misconceptions and, and, and distrust about God and what God wants and what God wants to do. Like, that's how the enemy works. You talk to someone who is uh, on the backside, kind of on the outside of their Christian faith because of whatever has happened, you can hear it and see it, the confusion that the enemy has brought in about who God is, number one, what God does and how God treats his people. Because inevitably, a, con- a conversation with a person who has stepped away from the church, inevitably leads to a conversation where they just, they just don't, I just don't see how God could allow this or why God would want this. Right? That's where it always goes. Confusion, confusion, confusion is how the enemy works. And then not only that, but then he begins to plant these seeds of discouragement that kind of make their way around the people. In verse 10, we see the people discouraged and communicating this discouragement. 
It says, the strength of those who bear, in verse 10, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. You know, the, this message that they're saying, this is them, the people of Israel, communicating, is circulating. Discouragement coming from among them. Church, some of our greatest doubts, some of our greatest discouragements may come from people around us, and it may even come from those who are a part of the process. You know, he says here in verse 10, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. And so they're focused, they're seeing the leadership, and, and in their minds, the leadership is not doing what they need to do. They're not, they're not, they're not being what they need to be. And so ultimately that's leading them to this point where they said there is too much rubble. Now they're seeing. They're seeing what the enemy was telling them. Oh, there's just too much. There's too much mess. There's too much junk. I'm not going to be able to fix this. I'm not going to be able to accomplish this. And then we see the problem. We see where the focus is by ourselves. By ourselves. Where does the enemy want us to get our focus he wants us to get our focus off of God and on ourselves. See, that's the problem with, with, with the me-focused mentality. And the problem even further with that is that a lot of the modern church leans that way so heavily. Me-focused. Me. God wants me. God needs me. I had a conversation this week with someone that said, well, I mean, but God needed us. God created us because he needs us to to live through as like kind of a vessel of his action. Like, man, that is, that is confusion to the max. God is self-existent. God needs nothing from us. The fact that God even chooses to allow humanity to be a part of anything that he is doing is just a reflection of his grace and love. The fact that he has done anything the fact that he has put air in our lungs this morning is a reflection of the common grace that he even gives to an unbelieving world. God owes us nothing. And he needs nothing from us. And so anything God does with us and for us is just a testament of his love. It's just a testament of his grace. Hey, church, by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild it. By ourselves, we will not be able to restore anything in our lives. By ourselves, we will not be better fathers and mothers. By ourselves, we will not be better parents. By ourselves, we will not be, we will not be better at anything. But the beautiful thing is that it's not about ourselves. But it's about the work Christ has done. And that there's some work that we can do to navigate the enemy's weapons of oppositions against us. And we'll finish with this last thing. The first thing being the enemy's weapons of opposition. The second thing being positions of protection. That the place that we need to be is in positions of protection. Verse 9, he says, Nehemiah says, we prayed. We prayed. And so I need us to know this, that, that the Christian life cannot function properly without prayer. It cannot function properly without prayer. 
And listen, the thing that I need, and we've taught on prayer before, but the thing about prayer is prayer is not telling God something that he doesn't already know. And prayer is not convincing God about something. If prayer is anything, prayer is us lining our own minds up with the will of God. If we're praying appropriately, if we're not praying selfishly. It's us lining our minds up with the will of God. And so he says in verse 9, we pray. But not only that, and this is where we need to be aware. He says, and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Nehemiah led in response. And the first thing he said is to pray. But not just to pray, but to also take personal action. Church, prayer is a major part of the process, but it is not an excuse to do nothing personally. You know, Nehemiah could have done a lot of things. They could have just said, hey, we just need to pray and sit back and see what happens. Listen, the thing is, if they would have prayed and sat back and seen what happens, nothing would have gotten done. Not because God is incapable, but because God's intention was to use them to do the work. Listen, God has placed each and every one of us in our own broken down kingdoms that need action, that need people, that need men and women willing to step into those spaces to be a part of the rebuilding process. Can God do it on his own? God created everything from nothing. He absolutely can. What does God choose to do? God chooses to utilize broken humanity to be a part of that restorative process. And so how does he do that? He does that by our active participation in the work that needs to be done. He says that they prayed, but not only did they pray, but they set guard. They set guard. Church, they needed to be the wall until the wall was finished. And that's what we have to do in our lives, in the lives of the local church, in the lives of our families. Listen, we're going to spend a lot of time being the wall until the wall is finished. And when I say the wall is finished, when God just redeems us all, we're going to spend our life being the wall. We're going to spend the, 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 our life being the defense against the attacks of the enemy for our families. We're going to be the ones standing in defense for our kids that are next door. As the enemy hurls false truths and deceptions at them, we're going to be the wall of defense. We're going to be the ones that stand firm. And the Bible constantly communicates to us about this idea of reinforcing who we are to be able to stand in the place that God has called us to. Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Keep your heart, protect your heart, guard your heart with diligence and vigilance. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 through 10. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around, like a, prowls around like a lion, roaring lion. I'm sorry. Be sober-minded. Listen, and, and this, so this is not only speaking of, you know, not being drunk in a literal sense, but also not being drunk and not being an indulgent of the things of the world that, that get us distracted, that we're finding our fulfillment and satisfaction in. Listen, this may be tangible things, or this may be un intangible things, like uh, acceptance, right? Happiness. We can be, we can lose our sober mind, in a sense, 
by being indulgent of anything other than God, where we're finding our fulfillment, our satisfaction, our identity, in anything other than God, we can lose our sober-minded approach. Sober-minded, watchful, because your adversary, the devil, is seeking you. In verse 9, he says, resist him. There's this active process, this active work he calls us to. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Will himself, will himself restore. And not only will he restore, but he'll confirm. And not only will he confirm, but he'll strengthen. And not only will he strengthen, but the thing that we all desire is that he will establish you. To be established is to be secured. So church, the call for us is is a call to action, to set a guard, to set a guard. Church, when we see an area of our Christian life that needs particular attention, it isn't enough just to pray. It isn't enough just to pray. Prayer is a major part of that. But we need to watch. Give special attention and accountability until we walk consistently in victory. Listen, we all know the spaces at which we're weak. We all know, or we should know, the spaces at which we have a propensity to slip. Give those spaces special attention. Set a guard there. What do I need to do? How do I need to establish accountability? How do I need to navigate that space? Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's with someone else, but establishing a rhythm of accountability at least until you find yourself walking in consistent victory. Set a guard in your vulnerable spaces. Set a guard in your weak spaces. Get rid of something. Add something. Whatever needs to happen, an active, uh, an active intervention in your life, make it happen. Make it happen. And then I love this, and we'll finish here. In the lowest, in verse 13, he says, in the lowest parts of the space behind the walls, in open places, talking about the vulnerable spaces, he said, I stationed people, and he says, I stationed them by their clans, or other translations would say, by their families. Church, the greatest weapon against the attacks of the enemy is a family equipped and alert. The greatest weapon against the enemy's attacks is the, is the family, equipped and alert. That is, the, that is the task of the church, is to equip and to alert the families. Because the greatest defense is the family unit. Because also on the other end, the greatest breakdown of morality and humanity is the family unit. Where the family unit compromises and you begin to create rhythms of compromise... Sin prevails, and morality breaks down. And then hope ceases to exist. So we live for the moment and not what God's got for us. We live for happiness rather than the joy of the Lord. We begin to live for momentary satisfactions rather than the eternal joy and eternal satisfaction offered by Jesus. The greatest weapon against the attacks of the enemy is a family equipped and alert, ready with the weapons of warfare to fend off the inevitable attacks. And then he gives the final, final kind of proclamation, and he says this, Do not be afraid of them. 
Church, we have no reason to be afraid of the enemy. Because why? He continues here in verse 14. He says, remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. Listen, we say awesome for a lot of things now. I use the word awesome a lot. But when the Bible uses the word awesome, it means magnificent to the highest degree. Awe-inspiring to the highest degree. That God is great and awesome. That there is nothing that can stand against it. That there is nothing that will prevail against the God of the universe. The creator of heaven and earth. Nothing can stand against it. And then he says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. The active process of his people stepping in line with the work that God has for us. He says, fight. Fight for who? He says, fight for your brothers. Fight for the people that you're standing in the trenches with. Fight for the people that you go to work with. Fight for the, 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 the people you go to school with. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your neighbor. Not only that, not only fight for the people outside of your family unit. And this is when you know the work of God is getting done. Is when, the, when your intention and your work and your fight is outside of yourself. It says fight for your brothers. I love that that's where he starts. But not only that, and it becomes more and more personal. Fight for your brothers. Not only that, in verse 14, fight for your sons. Fight for men to be men. Because as we navigate a space where masculinity is constantly being degraded, constantly being broke down, constantly being withheld, constantly being ripped out of what it should be, fight for your sons. Fight for men to be men, to step into spaces confidently, to lead confidently, to be bold in their faith. Because that's what the church needs. That's what the world needs is men to be Christian men again. He says, fight for your sons. Not only that, he says, fight for your daughters. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your daughters to be strong women of God. Fight for your daughters to lead boldly. Fight for your daughters to step into the space of their faith that God has given them and to be confident. And to not have to lean into lesser things to find fulfillment and satisfaction. Fight for your daughters to have a confidence in who God is. To have a confidence in the Father of Heaven. And how He views them. And how He sees them in a world that will tell our daughters that they're never good enough. That they're never pretty enough. That they're never strong enough. That they're never smart enough. Fight for your daughters to be confident Christian people standing in the work that God has for them. And he says, fight for your wives. Fight for your spouses. Fight to have a Christian home. Fight to have a partner who is standing, who is bearing the, the weight with you. That you can be equally yoked in this process of life that you're called to as a Christian husband and wife. As you're raising your family, as you're navigating that space, if you're navigating in a husband and wife relationship. That you're stepping in line, equally yoked in the direction that God has for you. Because if God can cause distortion and breakdown there, if God can cause distortion and breakdown there, then he'll begin to 
pull at the fabric of the family. And listen, unfortunately, we navigate circumstances where that's not the case, and maybe you're navigating that space alone. Listen, the God of the universe fills that void. In a single dad home, single mom home, God fills that void. And God will support, God will carry on, God will fulfill. Because then ultimately he ends here. Fight for your homes. Fight for your home. Whatever the structure of that home currently looks like, fight for your home. Church, the call to action is the foundation on which we stand and it's the reason we do it. We, not, we don't do it in our own strength, but we do it in the strength that the Lord has called us to. And as the band comes up, I just want to share a couple more scripture with you. As we're reminded about what it is that God does and the place that God plays in our life. Deuteronomy 1.30 says, The Lord your God goes before you and will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. He says, listen, the God of the universe that fought you out of slavery the first time, will continuously fight you out of slavery through the process of your life. Church, he will do it. He will accomplish it. He will work it. Church, he goes before you. He's there. Deuteronomy 121, See the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you, do not fear or be dismayed. He says, go and take possession. He's speaking to them about the promised land where the enemy is. But to take possession of it, they have to, they have to move away from their history. They have to move away from their past and move into their promises. He tells them, take possession. Listen, the God of the universe is speaking that same thing into our lives today. Take possession. Take possession of the promises. Take possession of the promises of God's provision. How He wants to work. What He wants to do. He will restore you. He will restore your relationship. He will restore your family. He will restore your Christian faith. He will restore those broken down things so that progress can be made. Because no progress can be made if we settle into the mess of what was. No progress can be made if we settle into the confusion of complacency and, and, and comfort. He says, take it. Take possession. Live in the truth of what God speaks, not in the confusion of what the enemy throws at us. Listen, if you are not making progress in your Christian life today, I promise you it's one of two things. It's either living in complacency and comfort of our mess, or we're settling in the confusion of what we don't understand. And listen, I'm not talking about blind, ignorant faith. I'm talking about refocusing to the God of the universe who speaks truth clearly in love to us who we are, what we do and how he does for his people Psalm 20 verse 7 it says some trust in chariots and some in horses it says but we trust in the name of the Lord our God that that is the weapon at which we wage war that is the place at which we step forward is in the name of the Lord our God so church if you would if you'd stand with us and that you would take time this morning to diligently pray and seek the Lord. God, what does it look like for me this morning? What does it look like me this morning to step into the space that you have for me? God, what does it look like for me this morning to take strides of progress? Lord, where do I need to engage the weapons of the enemy? Where do I need to set a guard? Am I confused? Am I afraid? Am I conflicted? 
Where do I need to set a guard? What I want to ask you to do this morning is to pray. Where are the places at which I need to set a guard? Where do I need to give special attention to these spaces? Nehemiah talked about it, the low spaces, the spaces in between. Where are the vulnerable places for me that the enemy can get in? And then pray, God, give me the strength and courage it takes to be the wall until the wall is finished. Help me to protect my family. Help me to step into the spaces to protect the people around me, my brothers and sisters of faith. Help me to step into the purposes and, 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 and take courage in making the steps and making the decisions I need to make to do the things that you desperately are calling me to do. What does that look like? Pray that this morning. Find a place. Pray with somebody. Find a private place within this gym. And, and just pray. Seek the Lord after that. Or sing where you're at. Pray where you're at. Whatever you need to do. Maybe it's just taking that step of faith into a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible says that if we'll call out to Him, we'll believe and repent, that we will be saved and secured and established. Not in my own work, but in the work of Christ. Church, could we, could we do that this morning? Pray and worship and seek after Him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You so much for the work that You're doing. God, we thank You so much that as we read these verses and read these truths, that we're reminded of the work that you're doing. God, that we're reminded of the truths that we navigate in a relationship with you. God, that in all our fears, that in all our weaknesses, and all our incapabilities, God, that all of those things are absolutely true. But the confidence at which we stand on to step boldly forward is not in our own ability, but God is in you to restore, to rebuild to lead, guide, and direct. God, I pray that we would be focused on you. God, I pray that we would just see you this morning and believe in who you are and what you do in the life of a believer here this morning. And God, if there's anyone who stands outside of that confidence of being a believer, God, I pray that you would lead them in directions of repentance and restoration and belief. To leave here boldly this morning as a follower of Christ. Lord, we love you and thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name.